So if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, we're going to be in Acts today. We're not in Acts chapter 1. That was eight years ago. <laughs> but uh, picking up a, a, a series, a study, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, from a long time ago that we never got to finish for one reason or another. We were in Maryland. Uh, God brought us back to New York and uh, just kind of felt led to teach other things since then. But I wanted to pick back up an Acts. And we're in Acts chapter 25 today. So we're almost at the end of Acts. We're further than even I thought we were a week ago when I, or a couple weeks ago when I was thinking about doing Acts again. So in order to start, I'm going to give a little bit of a primer to Acts, and then I might get on a soapbox for a minute. Bear with me, and I'll try not to get off that. I'll try to get off that soapbox quickly. But the title of today's message is called "Upon Examination." Upon examination, uh, that just makes me think of going to the doctor, and I don't like that. So I'm not going to think about that. But a primer for Acts. Uh, basically, it starts out in Acts. It's you know you think of the Gospels as containing everything that Jesus did, but Acts. Really, you could kind of even consider it Luke part two. Uh, and Jesus starts out at the beginning. And Jesus is there right before the ascension. And he gives the promise of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and he gives the promise of the Holy Spirit way back in John 14, verse 16 through 18. He says, I will pray to the Father, when he's speaking to the disciples, and he says, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. This helper, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. That's a big deal. The world apart from Jesus, cannot receive the Holy Spirit. Because the world neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know, the term the Holy Ghost, right? The world would say the Holy Ghost doesn't exist. There's no such thing as ghosts. Nor knows Him. That He's not a ghost. He's not just this force like in Star Wars, but He's a person to be known, Jesus says. But Jesus says, disciples, you know Him. And He says, basically, right now He dwells with you and he will be in you. That something special was coming. Right now he's with you. He's hanging out with you. He's living with you. But soon he's going to live inside you. And he goes on to say, I will not leave you orphans and I will come to you. Saying, I'm going away, but don't worry. The Holy Spirit is going to come and be closer to you than I'm even closer to you. Even you, John, when you laid your head on me during the Last Supper, the Holy Spirit will be closer to you than that. And the day of Pentecost comes, 50 days uh, after Passover and the Holy Spirit comes and, remember, fills the church. They were meeting in that upper room. A sound like a mighty wind came in. And uh, tongues of fire uh, were on each of the believers. And around Christmas, we had these little LED candles. And we had the kids put them on their head when we were reading this story with them just to kind of visualize it, right? Uh, and we talked about that. It looked kind of cool at night to have that going on. But the Holy Spirit came. This one spirit came and split and divided, in a sense, you can't really divide God, but the tongues of fire divided and were on each of the believers. And he jumpstarts the church. There had been believers, they were Jewish, but this is really the, the real beginning of the church age. And this day of Pentecost, it changes everything. It's not just another Sunday for them, it's not just a special day, but it's when the Holy Spirit begins to live inside the church and fill the church, and the church begins to do the works of God, do the works of the Holy Spirit. Peter goes out, he preaches, thousands get saved. People look on and go, I heard that in my language. I heard that in my language. That God was doing these miracles, right? And that even then, that others would look on and say, these guys are unlearned. As you read through Acts, they go, these guys are, are pretty dumb. You can tell they don't know how to make a proper sentence. And yet, these things that they're saying are obviously of God and powerful. 
And I take that to heart because I go, I'm pretty unlearned. I'm a college dropout. I, I can articulate my way. I remember in uh, high school writing a 12-page essay during an exam. And I think it was just so much that the teacher couldn't read it. She gave me an A anyway, even though I don't really know what I was talking about. But the things of God, I couldn't make that up. I can't flub my way through the truth of God. I'm unlearned. I've got nothing. I'm nothing to the world. And yet, for some reason, God uses me in small ways. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I don't want to be well-learned and well-educated. I want to be of the things of God. And I want God to be proud of me. I don't want people to be proud of me. But before the Holy Spirit's influence, believers in history like David, Saul, the prophets... The Holy Spirit would come upon them. He wouldn't necessarily fill them. They'd be anointed with oil and the Holy Spirit's presence would be with them. But he might leave them. He departed from Saul. Saul was disobedient. David pleaded with God, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. We as believers never have to pray that. We're going to grieve the Holy Spirit. In the past, you grieved the Holy Spirit, he would leave. But he doesn't leave now. He hangs on and says, hey, quit doing that. But now in the church age, because that veil was torn at the temple of Jesus' death, believers can be indwelled by the Spirit. That presence of God, that Shekinah glory of God that was over the uh, Ark of the Covenant can now dwell within you and I. That power of God is within you and I. Whether we believe it or not, it is. Whether we realize it or not, whether we've experienced it or not, if you're a believer, He's in you. He's waiting for you to be obedient and experience it. But the church age, the believers are now indwelled by the Spirit and they're given gifts of the Spirit, things that they couldn't do before, speak in tongues, uh, even just preach the gospel, uh, gifts of ministration, all these things that we see in Corinthians, which is another great study, are things that cannot be done on our own, cannot be conjured up through seminary, cannot be come up with through committee, cannot be uh, bought with power like Simon the sorcerer says, tell me, how much money do I have to give you? And you give me this gift of the Holy Spirit. I say, no, 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 that's demonic. Get out of here. Which makes me think about some of these ministries that you pay to go learn how to... It doesn't work that way. Because Jesus says in John 16, He says, I tell you the truth that it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if... I, isn't that interesting? The Holy Spirit says, well, if Jesus is there, what do they need me for? When Jesus leaves, the Holy Spirit says, okay, now it's my time. He says, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The Holy Spirit is doing that right now. Barack Obama, when he closes his eyes at night, the Holy Spirit's there convicting of sin and judgment and righteousness. Same thing with your uncle, your sister, whoever it is, your boss. He's there reaching them saying, hey, turn to me. Judgment is coming. Turn to me. Your sins can be forgiven. You're being wicked. And even if you think you're being good, it's not really good without me. But this church filled with the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, what was their focus? Their focus was on Jesus. That this is what the church was. In fact, they called themselves the way. They didn't even call themselves Christians yet. That was a name that the Romans would make fun of them with. Oh, look at the little Jesuses running around. Christ, little Christian, little tiny Christ. They called themselves members of the way because they knew that this was the way for them to live life. 
to go after. Every other way, every other thing they did before was not worth it to them any longer. That Jesus was the way, the truth, and life. And what does it say in Acts 5? Um, they had called the uh, apostles and beaten them. These are the Pharisees, the Jewish, the religious people. And they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They rejoiced that they were suffering shame for being a Christian. I don't know if I've ever rejoiced for that, right? I might have suffered shame before, but I remember going, yeah, that was great. I got chewed out at work because I wanted to go to church on Sunday instead of taking a shift or whatever it was. But it says they go on, and in daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That their focus as the church was to teach and preach daily in the temple, in their house, in your house, in their friend's house, that Jesus was the Messiah they were looking for. That Jesus was the answer for everything. Not psychology, not 10-step program, not your best life now, but that Jesus was the answer for everything. We have that up there, that every day they broke bread from house to house, right? I can't read it because it's in the script and it's far away, but it's good. And Acts 13.49 says, The word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. That means it was spread throughout all the region. I like that the King James has published that this was their goal. We're going to get the word of God out. It's not about anything else but the truth of Jesus and the word of that truth of Jesus being God and being the answer. And that's what they were about. That they were a church that wasn't a building, wasn't a group of buildings, wasn't a denomination. Not that it's wrong to have a building, not that denominations are necessarily wrong. I mean, you could, we could talk about that another time. But people held together by the holes in Jesus' hands. That these hands that were uh, crucified, that were crushed, that were beaten, that were bruised, held these people together. That's what they had in common. They didn't necessarily have anything else in common. They, they weren't all like members of the Republican Party. <laughs> they didn't all belong to the same country club. But they were people who had been touched by Jesus. They were prostitutes. They were tax collectors. They were fishermen. They were educated. They were uneducated. They were rich. They were poor. But they all loved Jesus. And they had him. And that's what they were about anymore. They, they primarily cared about their own lives. Their focus was on the life of Jesus and on the life of others coming to know the life of Jesus. They didn't care anymore. As you see, they, they began to sell their goods. And in fact, some of them sold too much, right? And other churches later on had to give them money because they became so broke. They kind of overdid it, right? But they sold their abundance and they sold their extra stuff. They got rid of the stuff they didn't need or sometimes even the stuff they did need and brought them money that none of them suffered lack now i'm not preaching socialism here because that's kind of by force but hey when the church is operating god's going to lay on your heart hey do you really need that extra set of golf clubs do you really need to take that vacation this year can you take us you know god will begin to lay things on your heart about how to give and how to meet and through the church can meet those needs whether it's through tithing whether it's through giving whether it's through you know your i mean i remember being young and single and being broke and people to church at places they rent and they rented for me way below market value. Not because I asked, because they said, hey, we have these properties. We want to use them for people in the church. We want people in the church to rent them. And nowadays I go, I'd love to own a property and rent it out, but I, w I wouldn't want to rent it to anyone outside the church. Even that's kind of risky. But I digress. The church cared for each other's needs. And it wasn't by force. And we know that when Ananias and Sapphira lied, 
They didn't have to, they didn't have to sell the property one and they didn't have to give the whole amount either, but they lied about it and God, they both died suddenly and not, not from the vaccine either. And they carried him out. Why? Because God wanted to make sure that the point was being made, that this is about a relationship with me, this is about being holy, and that the Holy Ghost is real. You can't lie to him. You can't say, oh, the Holy Ghost, you know, he's doing a work. And so what is our focus? And here I get on a little bit of soapbox. I'm trying not to be, I'm trying to treat it the right way. But what is important about the churches we belong to or the churches we're looking to? Is it like that early church? Are we there? Are they there with a motive at the center? And who can really know our motive all the time, but the word of God can divide that, right? But is our motive to simply know Jesus and make him known? Is that why we come here? Is that why we do this? Is that why we go to the church down the street or keep going there for whatever reason or not another? Is it because you know that you're meeting Jesus there? Is some, or is something else really taking that seat, that place, that rightful place in us? And I don't say that to make us feel bad. If it does, then that's good in a way because it helps us, you know, sorrow of a heart makes it better. But no, if you read the New Testament, like we just read Revelation, right? Jesus had a lot of correction for the church. The church was course corrected all the time because we quickly get distracted by shiny things. Uh, we talk about Lord of the Rings and shiny, and then Mia had this shiny necklace on the other night, and Alicia goes, ooh, shiny. And it was so funny, right? Like We become low pack rats, and we get the little shiny thing, and we get it, and it distracts us from what's most important. You know, Jacob, I'll put, him, I'll put him under the bus for a little bit for in a good way. He was, uh, we were reading, and he, uh, we had this little deal. If he read this Bible in a certain amount of time, I would give him money, and every day he finished earlier, I'd give him more, just because I wanted to, he wanted to read it anyway. I wanted to bless him for it and encourage him to read it fast, because I know he can read fast in a week. And he read it in like a couple of days. And he was at the, do- he was at the doctor, and he's reading there, and he says to Ashley, he says, you know, I don't think it's right that I'm reading this for money. Like, I should just read it to want to read it. And we commended him. And I gave him more money. Cause of that. so, now, so now he's, you know, you know I, still, oh, I still have to go to the bank. So better wait till payday. But the point was, I want to encourage him. Like, that's God's spirit in you, speaking to you, showing you, hey, it's your conscience too. That, hey, you should read this because you want to read this. And he did. And on top of that, God always wants to bless, right? God will always bless it. We might start out with one motive and God will tweak us and then he'll give us even more than our original motive was looking for in the beginning. But we, like the Israelites in the wilderness, what do we do? We tend to wander. They had a, a pillar of cloud and fire behind, in front of them, guiding them, and they still wandered. Like those people with the BMWs and the GPS and they go off into the mud and get stuck because they just, they're so dumb, they just follow the GPS into the mud. But we have the Holy Spirit within us. We look at the Israelites and go, you guys are so dumb. 40 years in the wilderness? I'm going to be 42 this year. How dumb am I? And I've got the Holy Spirit in me. And I'm still wandering, wondering which way to go, wondering what, what to do. And I think of my late friend, Pastor Tony, who's in heaven now, that he had a church in upstate New York uh, in Woodstock. And they did a lot of events. They did a lot of outreach. They had a lot of studies. They always had something going on. There was... It was a small church, but it was healthy. It was vibrant. They were becoming a family. They were reaching the community. 
And it was all going very well. You would look on and say that this is all good stuff going on. And one day he was just like, I'm clearing the whole calendar for, I think it was like the month of July or something. And they cleared the whole calendar. And he's like, even if all this stuff is good, I want to go back and just spend time with Jesus and make sure our church is just focused on the right thing and not getting caught up in the wrong thing. And what happened after that time? They picked back up and God gave them a vision for a, a bigger outreach in the community. They did, uh, what did they, it was Yeshua. Yeshua Festival, that's right. And uh, it was all like tie-dye, but the community was poor. They had all this uh, back-to-school stuff for the kids and clothes and there was music and food and even the, the mayor and other people showed up and were really like impacted by this thing in their community. And the Lord used that. And not that their stuff was doing was wrong, but hey, they said, Lord, this is all great, but we want to make sure we're honoring you most of all. And as they stepped back, God was pulling them back and shot them out bigger. And then they did it again another year, and I think another year uh, before they uh, went to Indiana. But I'm not trying to really pick on the church here. You know, I think in a sense, we're all really looking for a good one. That's why we're here. You know, we've been looking for a good church. And that's not our only sentiment. I say this because there's so many others um, around the country that I know that's their same sentiment. Man, we're just looking for a good church. I mean, I think part of that comes down to what's your definition of a good church, right? But what is the American church really about? If you step back, pretend to be Canadian or Mexican or something first season, and look at America, and what is the American, the Western church really about? And I'm not even really talking about those errant denominations. Let's cut them out as they're going to cut themselves out who are endorsing all kinds of abominations and things that we read about in the news. But I'm talking about your average church, your Protestant, evangelical, non-denominational, denominational uh, church. And just a sort of a, an anecdote, I think that maybe we were spoiled in our church in New York for many years. Uh, it wasn't church. It ended up falling apart, right? So who's to say how it turned out at the end? Uh, and the people were scattered. But for a very long season, it was very healthy. And many people came to the Lord in that season. There was a lot of fellowship, a lot of things going on. Good worship, good teaching, good kids ministry. People would come and get saved and want to serve. And new things would blossom out of that. Um, uh, and many churches were planted because of it. And those churches that were planted and built from that ministry still they exist today. But I wonder, is it really events? Are, is the church at large just about doing things? Putting on enough events to make the community happy? You know, you go to the church, you get a mug, you get a t-shirt, you get a sweater, right? All these things are good. But is that really... What's necessary? Is it about just numbers? Well, we had this many people come this week and that many people come this week and we need to get more people. And, and I get wanting to reach more people. I'm not saying that it's wrong to want to reach thousands of people. I have a church that's full of 10,000 people we'll do 15 services on Sunday, whatever it is. That's fantastic if it's for the right reasons. And even if it's not, God will use it. There's plenty of big mega churches on TV that I would think are totally errant, but I know that God is saving people out of that somehow. And as they grow and mature, they'll hopefully leave and get somewhere healthy. But it's not about making people happy or giving people something to do without sharing that gospel. You know, I know of a church, um, they do good things in the community, they do outreach. And I've had a conversation with this pastor and I would even consider him a, a good friend and respect him, but he got a lot of backlash in his community even believers, when they share the gospel at an outreach, like, we don't want to hear that. Our kids come home, you know, like our neighbors, like, hello. That's the point. 
It's not just to give everyone a good time and invite them to come on Sunday and hope that they come on Sunday, they enjoy it, and you know maybe they hear the gospel. That's good. But they need to hear the gospel. And if you're doing an outreach with any other motive, right? Like, soup kitchen's great, but is Jesus preached there? If you feed them just once, what's the point if they die at the end of the day? And what do I know, right? I don't know anything. I don't have anything under my collar of that caliber. But man, I think about people who back off from that. When they get that out, then the outreach they do the next year is more watered down and just nice. And maybe they'll teach little Bible stories, but there's no gospel presentation. And not that you need to give an altar call every time you preach or every time something goes on, but I think the point is like, are we shying back from that? Or are we being the church? Are we focused on the things of Jesus and publishing his word and making sure people know that when they come here, the one thing they're going to get is Jesus? They may not like it. They may not like us. It may not be fun or it may be fun. They may get a mug. They may not get a mug. But at least they got Jesus. And it's up to them what they did with it. Instead of trying to like slowly get them in. Because it said what you catch people with is what you'll keep people with. Right? And Ashley caught me because she's beautiful. But she, she stayed beautiful. <laughs> people at work there, they were all talking about her in the chat because we were talking about different things. In good ways, like Megan and Kara and Adrian, you know, it was, it was good. I was like, she's not real, guys. She's a thing in my imagination. <laughs> but I've visited a lot of churches around the country. And in some, we've gone completely unnoticed. All six of us somehow, even with me, somehow completely unnoticed, so to speak. Not one person saying hi. Okay, well, I could sneak in there and sneak out and check off the box and not be bothered. I get that sometimes in certain seasons. I get not wanting to be bothered and just wanting to go and be ministered to and hear from the Lord and grow and heal. I get that. I've been in those places in my own life. But to go unnoticed is kind of like a different story, right? And some we've been flooded with warm greetings, feeling very welcomed, even staying at the church for a while. We've seen great kids' ministries. We've seen ones that are you have to like sign up three weeks and at least you get down, hey. You need something to ask, okay, you're going to fall. Uh, you have to sign up and give a drop of blood into the computer <laughs> so they track your kid. And unless you got three forms of ID, you ain't getting your kid back. I get it. Uh, we've seen great worship. We've seen others that's, they have, they have an instrument, <laughs> you know, but I don't know that, you know, they love the Lord, don't get me wrong, and we could worship it in it, but it wasn't musical. Uh, we've seen some really good teaching, and we've seen some really not good teaching. Um, and you might lump mine in in that second part. But some teaching, we went in and the, the fellowship was great, the worship was great, the kids were great, and then the teaching happened. And it wasn't just a bad teaching. It was, at worst, at best it was unhealthy and misguided, and at worst it was doctrines of demons, and I said, Ash, we got to go. And we got to get the kids out. And the people came running out, of, one of the kids' ministry people came running out of the parking lot, like, oh, your kids forgot these. I'm like, thank you. You know, like... It wasn't like, that guy up there on stage, you know, it's like, it's time for me to leave quietly. And we had been very help, hopeful in, in visiting that church as well, but just, all right. I don't doubt that they don't love the Lord. I don't doubt that there's people there who are serving God, but come on, like, can't even get, there's, basically there's no need for a, a message like that. You got 66 books to go through. Just pick a verse. And it'll be fine. But it bothers me. How can we be the church and it be so hard to find a good one? 
And maybe I'm just too picky. I'm super picky when it comes to everything, right, Ash? And maybe that's on me, and so I struggle with that. But what's a good church? You know, I tried to lay down my pickiness aside for several seasons and be a part of a church that I was just like, maybe I'm just too picky, and we'll get in there. And we were blessed by a mystery, but along the way there, we're like, this is really missing something. This is really absent of something. And we would spend time with the Lord. He's like, well, it's time for you to do something else. Because if, we're not of the, if we don't go to church and we're not being fed and we're not a part of a family, not that they need to rule over your life and judge every decision, that's wrong. But if you go to church and you don't hear from God and you don't walk away going, I got a little taste of God, then what are you there for? Is it the friends? Is it the mug? Is it the really great fancy worship and light show? You know, I say the more we kind of get into those things, they can, they can be like idols. But I know this is a long intro. We'll get to Acts real soon. But the five spokes of the Christian wheel, personally and corporately, are the word, worship, evangelism, fellowship, and prayer. And churches and ourselves need to have these things. Wor- the word, worship, evangelism, fellowship, and prayer. And nobody's perfect. We all get a bent rim that's out of balance from sometimes, you know, you hit the curb. We're going to curb our wheel spiritually from sometimes. But if the, even if these things are going on and there's still something missing, could it be the Lord himself? Could it be the Holy Spirit? And how come I'm the one who noticed it? Like I said, what do I know? I'm nobody. But if, even, if I can notice this, it's really frustrating because I go to a church and I expect, well, there's got to be someone out there who notices this who's doing this right, <laughs> like the Bible would do, right? And, I had a, and before we get to Acts, one, one, little, one little more chunk here that I was talking to my friend. Uh, he's a pastor. He's in New York. His name is Vincent. I always thought he was wiser than me, and I still do, even though he wouldn't say that. Mostly because he would stay quiet when we were all pontificating. Like, Vinny's wise. But we were talking about America. We like to talk about prophecy. We talk about all sorts of things. But we were talking the other night, and I, I said to him, I was like, you know, I wonder if... We in America, you know, we just thought we were on fire for so very long. What if we're really not on, as, not on fire as much as we really thought in this country and in the church in the 90s and the 2000s? You know, all these great things were going on. And yeah, good stuff was being done. But we know it's the last days. We see these things happening. Easy bugs, right? We see the, all the world coming together. So we know it's the end. So where's the Laodicean church? Who's the Laodicean church, that lukewarm church? And he goes, could it be that the world is just so cold that any little bit of heat we have seems hot to us? And I was like, you know, I think that might be right to some degree. <laughs> you know, remember it was negative 38 the other day, right? We were outside yesterday. I'm like, Mia, it was literally, it's literally 60 degrees warmer than it was a couple weeks ago. And I was like, you know what's 60 degrees warmer than now? The other summer in Virginia. She goes, like her mind was blown that it was that much. And I wonder, is it really just negative 38 outside and we're just chugging along and it's negative 15 in our church, but it seems hot because we're not negative 38 in the church. You know, we don't have to wear 10 layers wearing three. And I wonder, is that us as the church in America? Is that us personally? Well, I'm not like the people I work with. Okay, well, that's, that's good and bad maybe. But are we like Jesus? Are we like the apostles? Are we like the disciples? That's a tough one. Because Jesus said to Laodicea, you're lukewarm and I will vomit you out of my mouth. And I don't think any of us 
I want Jesus to say that about us. And I think because we want that and we think that and we're aware of that, I would say we're probably not lukewarm. Maybe we're not as hot as Paul or Billy Graham, but I think God's turning up the heat on our lives a little bit, trying to say, I'm going to heat you up a little bit more and use you more, and you're going to find you like it even better. But back to Acts. The church that was mostly Jewish people turned to Jesus. They faced persecution. Now it was time for them to be a light into the Gentiles. They went to Europe, to Asia, to Africa. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch with Philip? Uh, Paul, named Saul, was present at Stephen's stoning, and he would grow up and uh, fight the church and kill the church and arrest the church. And when Paul, who we're going to look at today, was converted, it says in Acts 9, when Ananias, Ananias is praying, and the Lord says, hey, go, go talk to Paul. Go bring Paul around. And uh, Ananias goes, Lord, uh, he's the guy who's been killing everybody. And God says to him, he says, go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. One, I think that's interesting, that this Jew of Jews, God says, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. The least, they know nothing about Judaism, and I'm taking you to them. And I'm sending you to kings, remember that, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That part of Paul's conversion was great suffering for Jesus. But the man who murdered people for Jesus, would he himself eventually be murdered for Jesus? That people would know Paul's not in this for gain. That Paul has not manipulated this to work out for him spiritually. In fact, the opposite. And so God, as we get into this chapter and, and get through it and uh, really hear your word, we want you to speak to us. We want you to turn up the heat in our lives, God, as things that are cold are solid and stiff and unmoving. As you heat us up, let us become more uh, liquid and excited and <laughs> gaseous, so to speak, that we would have all this energy within us from you uh, by your spirit. That, God, we wouldn't want the normal life and we wouldn't live the normal life, but we would want your life. And even if you lead us to lead a normal life, to be um, whatever it is you call us to be in the world, that we would know that we are doing that because that's what you've called us to do. That if we stay fishermen, so to speak, it's because you want us to be fishermen and to minister to other fishermen. Or if you call us to leave our nets behind, it's because you've got something else for us to do that may not pay as much, but is worth much more in the long run. And we ask you, God, uh, in Jesus' name, but we thank you for these examples too. Amen. So, uh, again, just before we... Uh, Pick up in 25, just to, to recap, Paul was preaching to the Jews. They didn't like it. They wanted to kill him. Roman soldiers broke up those riots. And Paul began to sit before different regional authorities, sort of in different courts. And if we remember, Rome ruled over the world. It was controlling Israel at the time. They called it Palestine. Think of our occupation of Iraq or Afghanistan, but more permanent and more of a police state. Uh, but he's brought before a regional leader, Felix. His wife was Jewish. He hears Paul for a while. Paul, Paul was treated relatively well, but Felix left him in prison because Felix really just wanted a bribe to let him out. Uh, and he was interested in spiritual things, but the love of money really corrupted Felix's uh, judgment. And God was using it, though. You know, let's not get this twisted. This was all God's plan for Paul. Um, and it was God's plan to bring Paul before these very people. That These people, too, needed to hear the gospel. And the only way for these people to get an audience with Paul or even be able to listen to them was not at some party, was not at some Sunday, but was in the court. Uh, and so I believe that God gives everyone on earth opportunities to hear the gospel and repent. Uh, again, whether they do or not is on them. You know, I hear about this pop star who's talking about Jesus and they're canceling her. 
even though she was very like out there. Um, but Festus, this guy was slightly higher up on the food chain. He comes around. Now he hears Paul. And when he's done talking to Festus, Paul appears to Caesar. And in the last message, that was uh, his Roman right. That he, Paul was saying, take me to the Supreme Court. These lower courts aren't giving me justice. Take me to Caesar. So let's go on and read verse chapter 25, uh, starting at verse 13. It says, After several days, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to welcome Festus. And when they had been there many days, Festus stated Paul's case to the king, saying, There is a man left at... Uh, there is a man left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders and the Jews informed me about him, asking for a sentence against him. And we'll stop there. He said, this Jewish king arrives. Uh, maybe he's late on purpose. I don't know. But he comes to greet Festus. And this is, a, you know, again, bureaucratic struggle, bureaucratic power system. This ruler, the Roman ruler, the Jewish ruler. And, you know, they're coming when it's convenient for them. Uh, I, I think it's a case of everyone's in charge, and yet at the same time, no one's in charge. Uh, but many more days, Paul is left in this prison while they wait for these people to show up. He's appealed, he's waited, this guy shows up, they talk. Um, you know, you talk about a slow legal system, Paul's just sitting there rotten in prison. And uh, Roman prisons, Jewish prisons weren't like our prisons we have today. He wasn't getting three, uh, three hots in a cot, you know. Uh, he was in a dungeon. But imagine Paul sitting there in prison. He's got no updates. He's been wrongfully imprisoned. He was just trying to preach to the Jews, and now he's finding himself in jail, trying to plead his case. Um, uh, he's done nothing wrong. Even the rulers admit that he's done nothing wrong. But this is where God has, has him. Do you think he prayed to God and God said, Yep, Paul, this is where I've got you. You know, was he praying to get out? Was he praying to preach? And I think about those folks that we talked about a while back, walking across the country, sharing the gospel, having to run in with locals. Not that they shouldn't be in jail, but maybe God's got them there. While they're there, wrongly, he's going to use it for a reason. Or the, you know, dare I say it on record and go to jail myself, but the January 6th prisoners sitting there rotting, right or wrong, they don't need to be in a secret prison. Uh, that man kicked out of the Mall of America for his Jesus shirt, that woman arrested in Britain for silently praying, that God is going to use these people, even when they're wronged, to spread the gospel. Is she not going to have an opportunity to maybe share with someone in jail, right? That she might not have had that opportunity before. But he says that the Jews, Festus says, the Jews inform me about him asking for a sentence against him. They're like, Festus, this is this guy, Paul. We don't like him. We don't like what he talks about. Would you please just try him for a crime? Put something on him. Send him to jail. Ex get it, whatever it takes, get him executed. And he's going... <laughs> Uh, I don't really see what's going on. And Paul, he, he went to Caesar, but King, you're the king over there. Yeah, maybe I can appeal to you and you can give me some wisdom. Maybe I can pawn this off on you and they'll listen to you. But there was no crime. Now these people who got Paul arrested by the Roman government, not even their own government, so to speak, they hated the Romans. They were just offended by what Paul said. Is this not any different than our modern day? People offended wanting people put in jail, canceled, done away with, because they don't like what they say. Let's go on to verse 16. It says, I answered, it's not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to die before he who is accused meets the accusers face to face and has the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge against him. So when they assembled here without delay, Festus says, I sat on the judgment seat the next day and ordered that the man be brought in. 
When the accuser stood up, so imagine in court, you know, the prosecution stands up. They brought no accusation against him of such crimes as I supposed. But they had disagreements with him about their own religion and about a man named Jesus who had died, but whom Paul asserted was alive. Being perplexed about these questions, I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and be tried there concerning the charges. But when Paul had appealed to be under guard for the decision of Caesar, I ordered that he be secured until I could actually send him to Caesar. The Ephesus says that the Romans don't have any custom, no ethos, no custom, no law uh, to do this, to, to try someone unless he actually has a trial. Unless he's actually face-to-face with the accusers, charges can be brought against them. That they had this legal system that really uh, was a big basis for our legal system. But obviously there's some wiggle room in here in how these rulers are executing the law. It just reminds me of when the, every time they talk about the Constitution, they say, well, it's a living document. You know, that they can stretch the law and twist it and do what they want with it. But the fact of the matter was that Paul was a Roman citizen. And his case would need to be at least air t- appear airtight for him to send this up the chain. Imagine Caesar gets his case and goes, there's no charges? Who's this Festus? Replace Festus, right? Like Festus was watching out for himself. You know, he didn't want to get in trouble with his bosses. He couldn't waste everyone's time unless he actually had charges. And Paul wants to go to Caesar and he doesn't, he's got to send him to Caesar, but he's got no charges to send him with. And I see all these leaders are really just struggling along with the politics and how to play the system and how to operate in it. And the mob that they were ruling over, these Jewish people in this, in the, you know, these Jews didn't want to be occupied by Rome, but they were, and so they were a mob against them. And they wanted something done about this. Otherwise, they were going to cause yet another uprising and get these Roman leaders in trouble. But the Roman laws that put these Roman leaders in power also show that they have no legal case against Paul. They, just by looking at the law, the simple reading of it, he's like, I, I was expecting a, a case to come in here. I was expecting some law to be broken. And all they do is come in here and talk about some religious dispute about this guy named Jesus who they say he's dead. Paul says he's alive. I, I got nothing to do here. It's not, all, you know, nothing happened. What do I do? And I doubt that Festus put much stock in religion, even if he was like the rest of the Romans who had all the gods. And I think much like our legal system and lawyers and judges of our day, they could care less about what one sect believes or another, even legally. If a law is not broken, a law is not broken. I don't care if you dunk and you sprinkle. You use drums in worship and you don't. They don't care. It's not a law. That's, that's your own matter to be settled elsewhere. And like Jesus says, you know, don't bring another believer before court. Try and deal with them elsewise. But what got him was this, was this verse 19 about a man named Jesus who was dead, but Paul said was alive. And I don't see Festus necessarily mentioning the resurrection here, but I think he's just practically, he thinks that this, these guys think Jesus is dead, this guy thinks Jesus is alive, and they're just arguing over it, right? You know, who, who got that touchdown, right? So Festus wants to go back to Jerusalem and let the locals deal with it, um, but Paul doesn't want to go there. Paul wants to go upstream. And Festus says, you know, I would have sent it to you, King Agrippa, but Paul, you know, he's a citizen. He wants Caesar, so I don't know what to do here. And let's go on. He says, 22, Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. So he said, tomorrow you'll hear him. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the hall with the commanders and the leading men in the city. And when Festus gave the order, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are present with us, uh, you see this man concerning whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. 
and I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. But when he himself appealed to Caesar, I decided to send him. But I have nothing to write to his majesty concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that upon examination, I might have something to write. Uh, for it seems unreasonable to me to send a prisoner without signifying the charges against him. And then Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And we'll stop there. But uh, all these names, Agrippa would like to hear Paul himself, that they're talking. He's like, you know what? Let me hear this out. I don't know if it's he really cared to hear the case or he was interested in it or he just was trying to flex his power a little bit, maybe all the above. But he was intrigued for one reason or another. And he says, but we'll do that tomorrow, right? I've come in here today. We've done about 10 minutes worth of work and that's enough work for me today. <laughs> and isn't that like Congress to come in and do it and then call a recess for another couple of weeks before they figure out what, what they're going to do with that law. Uh, but he did enough work. And when he comes back, he comes in with this great show. They've got all the guards. They've got the secret service. They've got their robes on. They've got their servants. He comes in uh, with his, his, his wife or queen or whoever she is, Bernice. And they love the show. And they love making this scene when they come in, exuding their power, that they are powerful people. They are rich people. You know, they've got their Bentley parked outside, right? Not that there's wrong, anything wrong with having nice things, but they're all about this lifestyle. Uh, and again, it's like most politicians, right? <laughs> they love to come in and, and show that, oh, they're the powerful one in the room and, and they've got something that the rest of us don't. But in verse 24, it says that they, they were shouting that he ought not to live any longer, that they didn't want just Paul just silenced. They wanted him dead and they didn't want him dead for breaking some law. He wasn't a thief or a murderer, but because he said Jesus was alive. And in 1 Corinthians uh, 1.18, it says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. And Galatians 5.11 says, And I, brethren, this is Paul saying, If I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? If I'm preaching what the Jews want me to preach, why would I be persecuted? He says, Then the offense of the cross has ceased. That the point here is that the cross of Jesus is an offense to those who hear it. It's an offense to our way of life, and we either repent or we revolt against it. In 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8, it says, Therefore, to you who believe, Peter says, He is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The one they want nothing to do with, they want to throw away, pulverized, crush, is really the one at the crux of the whole foundation. Like in our society, you start taking Jesus out of it, the whole thing starts falling in, and that's what's happening. He says, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. That everyone was designed to come to the Lord, but they stumble because they revolt against it, and it's a rock of offense. That that's what the problem of the gospel is, is that it is offensive. That that guy in the Mall of America, people were offended at his shirt because it said, Jesus is the way, repent on the back. And he wasn't even going around talking to people. People were offended by it. But they weren't offended by the all-ages drag show a couple weeks earlier. No one was offended over that. No one was bothered by children being visually molested. But no, it's a shirt that says Jesus is the way. That God loves you. That God died for you, basically, is offensive and worthy of arrest or kicking out. But verse 25 says, I found that he committed nothing worthy of death. He's like, I heard his case. 
Nothing here strikes me as worthy of death. Maybe I could flog him or do something to him or I won't get in trouble and make the mob happy. But was he really worthy of anything else? He was just preaching the truth. It's not like he was lying to these people and manipulating them and stealing their money. But Paul appealed to Caesar. And he, uh, Festus says, he himself appealed to Caesar. And I believe in a way he's trying to pass the buck. He's like, I have no idea what to do. There's nothing in my power to do. But this mob won't shut up. So what are we going to do about it here, King Agrippa? And it's Paul's fault now. Paul invokes Caesar. I can't deny him that. He's a Roman citizen. So what do I do? I'm in a pickle. He says, I have nothing to write. Maybe you can help me pin something on him. You know, trump up some charges that will make sense. That's why I'm wasting everyone's time with this. Like, I don't know, say he cheated on his taxes. Say he's got uh, documents in his garage next to his Corvette. Whatever you got to do, just put something on him. And you know that uh, this guy could really just let Paul go. Paul doesn't have to go to Caesar if he's not being imprisoned anymore. Paul's saying, you keep imprisoning me. I did nothing wrong. Take me to Caesar. But he doesn't let Paul go because the mob is ruling this ruler. The mob is saying, we want him dead. And he's going, I got no charges. So if he's got no charges as a ruler, Paul should go free. Is it unreasonable to send? Well, how about it's unlawful to send Festus? How about it's against, you should have no reason to send Paul anywhere, but back outside to Burger King. And so Agrippa says to Paul, you know what? You're permitted to speak for yourself. Let me hear this out now. And that'll be for another time. But Matthew 10 says in 1920, Jesus says, when they, when they deliver you up, when they deliver you up, we've gone through a great season in America. We haven't been delivered up, but we're starting to be delivered up now. Do not worry about how or what you should speak. And I'm sure you all know this verse. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And Jesus says, don't worry, but don't come up with a plan when they take you and say, why were you preaching Jesus? Don't like sit around and write down every reason or come up with a, a theory, but just go there, pray, and let me speak through you. Because the wisdom of God is going to confound anything that these people have to say. And I wonder, this is me being full of conjecture, but what people should really do in these legal situations of their faith. Should they hire a lawyer? Do they need to hire a lawyer? Is it better just to represent yourself and plainly preach the gospel in the court setting? Would a lawyer prevent, if they're not a believer, twist the truth from getting out and just try and bring all these other things and obscure the gospel and just try and get you free? Now, again, in America, I think we've got a special situation, at least on the books, because our laws and our constitution uh, in many ways, and many of them, not all of them, are based on biblical principles and offer at least a fair trial. So I'm not saying you shouldn't necessarily have a lawyer. You know, we've got a system that's supposed to be one nation under God, right? I think more what I'm trying to get at, and maybe the scripture is getting at, is when there is no fair trial, as things seem to be going in our country today, when the mob rules, is it our job as Christians to make sure that we get a fair trial? Can we ever get a fair trial? Maybe if we hire Johnny Cochran, I don't know, he's not around anymore, but his protege. Or is our job as believers just to simply preach the truth to those powers that are in front of us that God has put us in front of? To flip the script, so to speak, and say, well, wait a minute, why am I here? I know that's hard to say. I know that's, I mean, hard to do, easy to say in my position, no charges against me. But if I'm ever arrested, you know, the panic and dread and worry about my family and all those other things, I'm not trying to make light of that. 
But I have to wonder if God, if we're followers of God, if we're part of the church, if we're full of the Spirit, if we've been saved by grace from someone who died and rose again, and our mission in life ultimately is to preach the gospel because this world is fading away, when we go before the courts, when we go before our boss, when we go before HR, you say, I was just preaching Jesus. How can I not speak of the things that I've seen? How can I not tell them about the hope that there is in Jesus, right? Because shouldn't we let God handle it? Maybe God's got a bigger purpose for us. Maybe persecution is something we should be expecting in this life. Because if they persecuted Jesus, he said, they're going to persecute us too. And they're really persecuting him through us. So Paul could have been wanting to go free. I think part of him wanted to go free. He might go continue to reach the Jews. But I think in a sense, Paul also knew his calling. He knew what God told Ananias. I have a feeling Ananias told him. Luke wrote it down. I'm sure Paul knew about it. That was to preach the gospel to kings. Well, Paul, poor guy, missionary running around, was not going to be at any place the kings were at. He wasn't invited to Davos. He wasn't sitting in first class on the airplane. And now Paul is appealing to speak to the highest earthly king there is, Caesar either on purpose or by divine providence or something of both, I believe. But here was the way to do just that. Paul would reach the very top of human government, all because some Jews were offended that he preached that Jesus was alive. So for you and I, as we are the church, as we gather with the church, let's make Jesus our focus. As we get through life, let's, begin to think that the situations that come upon us might have a different perspective in front of us as we follow Jesus. That doesn't mean go out and make yourself a martyr on purpose and do something on purpose, I mean, maybe, but really, maybe God has, has called us in these last days to shine brighter, and the way we're going to shine brighter is by not being negative 14 degrees, by being 98.6 degrees, fully alive in a society that is cold and dead and hard. Amen? So God, would you just take this and do with it as you will and help us live for you and be full of you. And God, that when you come back, you'd say, good job, uh, my faithful servant. That God, in the end of the day, that when you ask us to do something, whatever it is, may we do it as unto you. Like that pastor once said, it takes more Holy Spirit to do the dishes than to preach a message. Uh, God, may my wife learn that today. <laughs> but may we sincerely learn to live by your Spirit, whether it's a little task like doing the dishes um, and putting our flesh aside or by not being afraid when we stand before people who might hate us because of the truth we believe, that you love them and you died for them. Uh, so we ask this, God, in Jesus' name, bless us this day. Amen. So may God bless you and keep you and his face shine upon you. And let me know if you have a good lawyer. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until the door.